Uh, read along with me as I read John chapter 21, verse 15. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is God's word. Question is here, what do you do with a risen Savior? What do you do after seeing Jesus is alive? What do you do in the week or days following the most incredible thing that has ever happened in the entirety of all human history from past, present, or future? Well, the disciples had the perfect answer. We're going fishing. Now, if you understand that Peter, James, and John, and all the other guys uh, came from a fishing background. So to go fishing was just to return to normal life. Because what do you do with a risen Jesus? It's not like he's, he's coming, he's giving you a whole lot of orders at that moment, and you're just not sure what to do. You're like, well, we followed him for three years, we watched him die, and came back to life. We met him in the room several times, and we're really not sure what we ought to be doing. And Peter, being Peter, is like, well... I guess we'll go fishing again. I guess we'll go back to the life we had before because what else are you going to do? So the other guys, they all get in the boats and they go fishing again. And again, we see this bizarre play, a bizarre scene play out once again that is reminiscent of the time when Jesus actually met them. They fish all night and what happens? Nothing. Nothing. They are the definition of insanity. Either they used to be really good fishermen and are not now have lost their mojo in some way. But whatever happened, they are not capable of catching anything. They keep doing the same thing over and over again and getting the same results. So here's what happens. The dawn comes, they've caught nothing. And then this stranger, who's not really a stranger, is on the shore and he's like, Hey, by the way, have you caught anything? And they're like, no. And that's the worst thing ever. When you've tried to be doing the same project over and over and over again, like trying to fix your sprinkler system, and some nut job from across the street goes, hey, having a problem with your sprinklers? And you're like, you know, I really wish you wouldn't talk to me. So uh, I could, you know, continue doing what I'm not capable of doing, apparently. He says, why don't you try throwing it on the other side? And they threw it on the other side and suddenly caught all this fish, and they suddenly recognized it's Jesus. And they said, it's Jesus. Now that's really cool. So they're hauling in this thing. So they've got this dual joy. It's our risen Savior. He's third time we've seen him. This is so exciting. We better hurry and get this thing up. And Peter's like, puts on all of his clothes and dives in headfirst and swims to Jesus. Much to the chagrin of his boatmates who were like, you know, we really could have used your help. But what goes on here is, I think Peter's trying to overcompensate. You know when you've offended somebody and you, and you just uh, want to try your best 
to uh, appease them and show them that everything has changed now and you're sorry and all that kind of stuff. You overcompensate. Well, Peter kind of overcompensates. He's like, I'm going to show you just how dedicated I am. I'm going to swim 100 yards from the boat to the shore fully clothed. No, none of this, you know, aerodynamic, you know, swimming in my shorts sort of thing. I'm going with the trench coat and everything that weighs me down just to show him how dedicated I am to him. So he knows that what happened, you know, way back when, that was just a fluke. I'm sorry. But hopefully he'll just see that and forget everything. Well, they have breakfast. It's already cooking. Jesus is like, well, why don't you bring some of your fish too? So they just have this great fish and bread sort of sandwich thing going on and they enjoy it. And now comes this conversation that we read this morning. Peter's hoping that his newfound dedication uh, will kind of quiet the elephant in the room. But Jesus being Jesus and never shying away from confrontation addresses the elephant. And he speaks to uh, Peter in the earshot of the other ten guys. Or actually the other guys that happen to be there. Check this out. There's an element of community here. Peter is not completely alone with Jesus. Whenever I've read this story, I think to myself, well, Peter uh, got called away by Jesus to another part of the beach somewhere, and they had this private conversation. But it didn't happen. I think what happens is, if I piece it together, is that they're all sitting around eating together, and then uh, Jesus brings it up in the midst of everybody. And Peter's not alone. There's a spectrum of failures all around him. There is comfort in this band of brothers. You see, you got Peter who denies Jesus three times. And then you've got John who is actually at the cross. So you've got this spectrum and you've got these other guys who ran away. So they're all failures in this place. And they're all betrayers at some level. But there's an element of accountability here. And Jesus brings this up. Not just about what happened between Jesus and Peter, but what happened between Jesus and his disciples and between the disciples too. Jesus handles Peter's uh, Jesus' handling of Peter's issue is for them also. But what I notice here is that Jesus is very gentle with Peter as well. Notice what does not happen. If it was me, this is confrontation. And this is elevated voice confrontation. This is like serious, I'm angry, so you're going to hear it in my voice. But I don't hear that at all. I don't hear Jesus going, do you love me? There's no accusation here. It's a general, it's a gentle question. Jesus' voice does not appear to speak with angriness or, or disdain or harshness. You notice that Jesus does not denigrate or demote or, dis, or demolish Peter. Rather, it is a conversation they are having to deal with something that has happened, a bad thing that has happened, a negative thing that has happened, a, a, a break in relationship. It's in character with how Jesus handled the most vulnerable and bruised people in all of his earthly ministry. Notice how he handled uh, the woman caught in adultery. Woman, where are those who accuse you? He He didn't destroy her. Notice Zacchaeus. Notice the tax collectors. Notice all the sinners that he dealt with. He dealt with kid gloves. He dealt with gentleness. And the same goes with Peter. He's handling him with kindness and compassion. But his questions are deliberate though. Make no uh, uh, point, no, uh, there shouldn't be any confusion here. Jesus is really pointed with his questions here. He's not just saying it to get a rise out of Peter. He's actually doing it purposefully. Do you love me? 
first two times Jesus asks Peter if he loves him, it, it's this agape love. And we've talked about what agape means. It's this idea of love of the will, love of the head. You know, it's something in your mind that chooses. It's a conscious choice based upon the value of the object loved. In a sense, he's saying, do you value me beyond all of your feelings or desires? Do you value me more than the things that uh, uh, your safety and security? Do you love me? And twice he says this. And Peter responds all three times, though, with a different kind of love. Peter responds with, of course I love you. He responds with this brotherly love, which is like this deep affection and friendship. Yes, we're bros, Jesus. Yes, we're, we're tight friends. And I, I love you. Yeah, we're, we're connected. I love you as my friend. I love you as my rabbi. I love you as my faithful companion who has never left me. Uh, that's the kind of love Peter responds to. But Jesus is asking for a deeper love. Do you love me? Do you value me even when your feelings get off track? Do you value me and love me even when you are faced with uh, issues that would make you want to run away? Jesus' last question, though, says, do you love me? He matches Peter's love. He says, do you, are you my friend? Are you my deep companion? Are you the one who keeps me, uh, who, who will be with me forever and ever? See, somewhere in the sense is that Jesus wants Peter to love him with his whole being, not just his heart, which Peter doesn't have an issue with, but with his mind and his soul. It's that Deuteronomy 6, 4, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Jesus' questions, though, were not just, are you with me? But they are meant to evoke an emotional response in Peter. Jesus' questions were meant to get Peter to recognize what he had done in his three denials. Several weeks ago, we talked about confession as being part of a spiritual discipline, part of our spiritual practice and keeping short accounts with God. But what you notice here is that Peter doesn't actually confess what he had done, if you notice that. But what we do see is that Peter is grieved. Peter gets it after the third question. He catches what Jesus is doing. Jesus comes in sideways. Jesus doesn't confront Peter head on saying, hey, you, you lousy sinner, you blew it. You denied me three times in front of really great people, or these people. You, you said that you would go to the grave. Remember that? You took out a sword and cut off that guy's ear. You were ready to die with me and die for me. And in, in the day that it came, you didn't do any of that, you loser. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus comes at it from the side gets under the armor. He gets in through that one space where only God can get to you. And with the I love yous, Peter gets it. And Peter recognized what happened. He's grieved. He's generally remorseful. And he's like, yeah, I was hoping to avoid this, but now I can't. I'm caught. Notice this last thing that happens, though. Peter is grieved. And Jesus doesn't make him wallow in that grief for a while. He lets him feel it. He lets him feel the sting. He lets him experience the remorse. But what Jesus does is remarkable. Jesus puts Peter back on track. Notice what happens after every question. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do this. Tend my sheep or feed my lambs or feed my sheep. Here's just three things he's supposed to do. Go do these things. Don't just sit here in the grief and the sadness. I'm glad you feel that. I'm glad that you, you understand what happened. But my job as a as Savior is not to let you wallow in the grave, but to raise you up like me and put you back on track because there are things I have for you to do. 
There is purpose. It's not just to feel the sadness and feel the weight, but to have the stone rolled away in your heart to come out resurrected on the other side. See, Jesus' questions were meant to drive Peter to repentance and to put Peter back on Jesus' mission and run with it. See, Jesus' means of restorations were meant to get Peter up and moving out of the grave. And if we notice here that Jesus' life or the life of following Jesus is basically submission to the resurrection, submission to the forgiveness of God for sin and the mercy of God and towards the will of God. And here Peter, in his triple declaration of of love for Jesus, submits his life to the care of Jesus' people and eventually to become him like at his death. It's remarkable here. Jesus goes, you're on board. We're back in. We're in sync. We're equally yoked. We're ready to go. Let's go. But we're going to go someplace you probably don't want to go. When you're older, you're going to die a death that you didn't want to die. But this is the life that I have for you. But what's the point for us? As we sit here in this church service this morning, what does it mean for you and I? Here's what I think. I think the resurrection of Jesus, uh, uh, the resurrection of Jesus willingly and gently restores us from our betrayals and puts us back on mission. Each one of us carries in here failures and things we've done either against God or against our, our neighbor, uh, a spouse, a friend. But Jesus' rising from the dead is meant to lift us out of our sadness and out of our grief and out of our remorse and put us back on track again. When uh, I was a kid, uh, we didn't have this in our house, but I always envied those who did, uh, was slot cars. Do you know what a slot car is? Yeah, it was really cool. It was an electrified race car track, which was super cool. And the nice thing about it is you didn't have to steer. The car just ran along these electric rails and it went all around it. It was just the coolest thing ever. Now, the best part about this whole thing was that you could actually rev that thing up as high as possible, pumping as much electricity into these slot cars as possible. And as it approached the curve, it would never make it and it would jump the curve. And that was the whole point. That's all you wanted to do was crash the cars. It's like watching NASCAR, but in your house so or in your living room. What you would do is then you would take the car and you would gently put it back on the electrified track and then zoom around again and crash it again because you liked it. But in the same way, our lives, when they are connected with God, oftentimes we either are going too fast, too slow, or whatever, and we bit bumped off the trail, either by our choice or by somebody else's choice, and God wants to put us back on track. Here's what I mean by all that. Number one, God loves you deeply and forever. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Not your sin. There is no sin that can separate us from God's love. Put that in your wallet. Remind yourself of that every day. Put it on your mirror. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. I mean, look, Romans 8, uh, 3, uh, 38 and 39 says it right there. He says, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not circumstance, not sin, nothing. This week as I was meditating on the passage we're reading, the Spirit of God uh, kept repeating over and over and over in my head that Romans passage. I guess he's making a point. See, oftentimes we fail to do what is good, what is right, what is just, or what is God-honoring. And when we think that we have blown it by, beyond repair, we are, should be reminded that nothing can separate us from the love of God. If anything, this account that we've read today should give us hope that God can and does forgive 
all sins, no matter the intensity, no matter the scope. Whether it is a harsh word said to a loved one, whether it is a middle finger given to somebody who cuts you off in traffic, or whether it is something deeper, something worse, some other deep betrayal that has occurred. There is nothing that can separate us from God's love, not even our own sin. See, Jesus' death for sin and his resurrection should make that truth solid in our hearts and our minds. So please, let that be the core thing that you walk away with today. Not so much, uh, how's Jesus going to deal with me in my sin, but that God loves me so much that it does not stand in our way anymore. Second thing, Jesus, through the Spirit of God that is in us, is faithful to address our failures in ways that are most appropriate to our personalities and our circumstances. Many of us have grown up in the church and have been in sermons where we have either uh, uh, been, uh, where the, the sound of the preacher condemning us has just uh, worn on us to a place where we just don't want to approach God anymore. But I think what God does here is that God is very gentle and specific to our personalities to bring up our failures in a way that will motivate us the best. For Peter, it was the three sideways sort of, do you love me's. So some of us, it's, it's more direct. None of us like to deal with our missteps. None of us like to admit that we've done things wrong. None of us like to admit before God or anybody else for that matter, that we uh, are messed up and we make big mistakes and make small mistakes. We'd rather hide them or justify them or ignore them altogether. But God wants us to be better than we are. There's a reason why he picks Peter back up because he sees that Peter can be better than he is through the Spirit of God. He wants us to be better than we are, so he chooses to make us face hard truths about ourselves, our betrayals, and our failures. Not as a way of punishment, but as a way of saying, let's move past this. Let's get beyond this. Let's heal from this. Sometimes these encounters are like the one in the story, a sideways sneak attack sort of way, or otherwise it's a direct confrontation like David and Nathan. Where David, come, or David gets hit with the hard truth that he's done some terrible things. Either way, God chooses to interact with us in the most appropriate way so that we can be restored and make our way back. And lastly, I would say this is that Jesus' intention, like I said, is to put us back on our feet and get us moving again. Confrontation with God is not meant to destroy us. It is meant to point out a flaw and allow the Spirit of God to make that flaw new, to heal it. It's meant to restore and get us moving again. There is this moment of grief when we face our sin and we see it for what it is. Sometimes that's an intense feeling. Sometimes it's when uh, we are, can be full of tears. Sometimes it's just a, ah, crud. I shouldn't have done that. Ah, I, I, I chose myself over the right thing to do instead. Ah, and it's an easy correction. Sometimes the correction has deviated for so long or the, that it takes a long time to get back. But whatever, sometimes uh, uh, that feeling I said is intense and sometimes it's not either way. Is there, sometimes there's just not an appropriate amount of response is good and helpful. Either way, I'd like to say that the God corrects us and then reminds us of his good purpose towards us and then resets our course towards his glory and our flourishing. God is not out here with the holy magnifying glass seeking to fry you into oblivion. I'm here to help you 
I'm here to lift you up. I'm here to have you live with me. And to live with me, you've got to leave some of this stuff behind. And we've got to work on that. And then I'm going to bring you along. So, how should we respond? How should we should be kind of like Peter, I would imagine here? Number one, grieve for the moment. Yep, you've got to feel it. Not all of us like that. None of us like that, actually. None of us like to, to the feeling of when we've blown it. The grief or remorse or regret is, is necessary, though, for us to move forward. Sometimes you have to deal with some of the bad stuff. You have to deal with it and you have to feel it. But Jesus is with us. Notice he didn't drop the bomb on Peter and said, you lousy sinner, and walked off and said, now you go to your room and, and deal with your, your stuff, and then I'll come back when you're good and ready. No, Jesus stays with them the entire time. Jesus is with him in the, in the grief and the remorse. Jesus is with him in the sadness of, of his failures. He doesn't leave him alone. So when we sin and God brings it to our attention, feel it. It's okay. But secondly, get up. Now, sometimes that's easier said than done. But stepping out in love or with the love and forgiveness of God in, in us and on us is essential. God wants us to get moving again. To sit and wallow in our own sackcloth and ashes for an extended period of time only uh, you know, makes your skin itchy. You need to get up and get moving again. Jesus' resurrection from the dead gives life to our mortal bodies and enables us to rise from the dead each time we deal with our failures. And when the time is right, get up in the grace of God and move forward with him. When we do, God does not revisit our sins of our past. We were talking yesterday in our Bible study about God's revealing to himself, revealing himself to us as the I am, the very present God, the very now God. God is not a God of the past or the future for that matter, but right now. We talk about it in, 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 in uh, uh, school about being present. God is present. And he only cares about right now, what we're doing right now and how we're moving forward with him in the now. So grieve it, get up, and then follow Jesus again. I love Jesus' command to Peter at the time or at the end of that confrontation. He says, follow me. Simply put, it just means rejoin me where I'm going. Jesus is on the way. He stops Peter for a moment, deals with the sin, moves him on, and says, let's go. We have places to be. For Peter, it meant becoming one of the leaders in the Jerusalem, uh, in the Jesus way. It meant becoming one of the, the 11 or 12 guys uh, amongst other people who were uh, leading the infant church into what it was meant to be. And that he was led into a martyr's death. Now, granted, most of us here, I would say all of us probably are not going to be in that martyr's death sort of thing. But either way, when we fail, we feel it, we get up and we follow Jesus again. But the nice thing is that God has given us a community of believers like the disciples had, that we all together walk together as we follow Jesus. We're not doing this on our own. And we're all a bunch of sinners. And we're all a bunch of failures at times. But oh my gosh, we're all together. And Jesus is with us through the whole thing. God is always, we fall down, he picks us up. We fall down, he picks us up. And it's a circle, it's this life thing. It's just the way it works. He gives us a community. Hey, right on. First amen ever. Yes. And a path to serve in that community. Each one of us has been given a job to do. Each one of us has given us a path to walk together. We follow Jesus, journey with him in the God with life. So, your mission, should you choose to accept it, and I will make this available to you 
is a song by the, uh, David Belosh. It says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And I invite you, if you wanted to, you can listen to it. I don't even play for it right now. I want you just to sit and listen to this song for a moment as we prepare our hearts for communion this morning.